0: From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.
1: Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, the Head of Research and Programs at the American Folklife Center. This is Steve Winnick, AFC's writer and editor and creator of the Folklife Today blog.
2: Hi, everyone. John just told me some news, which I think he should tell all of you, too.
1: You won't be able to find Folklife Today's podcast anymore. We're going to a new format. From now on, our engineer John Gold will be recording this program directly to wax cylinders, which will be laboriously hand-duplicated and mailed to libraries across the country. It's part of our initiative to get people to actually go to the library instead of getting everything online. Personally, I think this is crazy, but... April Fools! Of course we're not doing that.
2: (laughs) And in case you listeners haven't caught on, today we're going to hear about April Fool's Day, including our own celebrations of it here at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress.
1: We have a special guest on this edition of the Folklife Today podcast, Michelle Stefano, a folklife specialist here at the AFC. Michelle, what are the origins of April Fool's Day?
3: Well, one common theory, and one that's pretty much accepted all around the world, is that it goes back to the Roman Empire. According to the historian Mendacious, in the year 325, a group of jesters convinced Emperor Constantine to make one of them king for a day. So Constantine agreed and made one of the jesters, named Kugel, king for the day. Kugel decreed that the day would be a day of jollity, and that is how April Fool's Day was born. Interesting.
1: So it's possible that a king of fools created the holiday during his day-long reign? Well, no.
3: That story's a hoax. What? I fell for it? So did the media. A Boston University professor named Joseph Boskin told the Associated Press that story in 1983. The AP ran the story as fact and had to retract it a few days later.
2: That is some fake news right there. Michelle and I are high-fiving in here. (laughs)
1: So, any real theories about the origins of the holiday?
2: I actually did some research on that, originally for an article in Library of Congress magazine and then for our blog. Michelle's one of our Europe specialists, so she's going to stay a while and help us talk about this, too.
3: What I said before had a grain of truth. Some people do think the idea of April Fool's Day goes as far back as Roman times. There was a joyful festival called Hilaria, which was probably originally an equinox celebration. That was celebrated on March 25th. But in Roman terms, March 25th was called the Eighth of the Calends of April, which associates Hilaria with the Calends of April, a.k.a. April 1st. But there's really no evidence that connects Hilaria with April Fool's Day explicitly.
1: So that would be more of an educated guess. Or some might say wishful thinking. But if we aren't sure about the origins of April Fool's Day, do we know how long the holiday has been celebrated?
2: All we know is that there are references to April Fool's Day in Renaissance Europe, but we can guess that its roots probably stem farther back than that.
1: Can you give some examples? Yes, in France,
2: Poisson d'Avril, or April Fish, is what you call a prank on April Fool's Day. But earlier, it meant the victim rather than the prank itself. The first references to Poisson d'Avril show up in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, including a 1508 poem by Éloi d'Amerval called Le Livre de la Diablerie or The Book of Deviltry. The context is a little fuzzy, though. It seems to mean both an errand boy and a gullible person, and it's unclear whether April 1st is really involved.
1: I guess fish were plentiful and very hungry in the spring, so an April fish could refer to a fish that's easy to catch because it's just waiting for the bait. But that reference doesn't prove that there was a holiday on April 1st.
3: Right. Another theory which a lot of people know about hints at April Fools originating in 16th century France. This one observes that in some parts of France, the new year was celebrated on March 25th, with the advent of spring, and that the celebration extended for a week, ending on April 1st.
1: Looks like there's a connection with hilarious dates, March 25th and April 1st.
3: Very much so. So this particular story says that in 1564, Charles IX's Edict of Rousselon officially moved the new year to January 1st. According to this version, many French people resisted the change or forgot about it and continued to party during the week ending on April 1st. Some jokers then ridiculed these people for stubbornly sticking to the old New Year's date by sending gag gifts or invitations to non-existent parties.
2: Right, but we can't completely accept this common story as the truth.
1: Wait, why is that?
2: Well, for one thing, it doesn't give any evidence. If people sent invitations to non-existent parties, wouldn't we expect some of these invitations to survive? If they survive, why doesn't anyone ever produce one as evidence? And if they didn't survive, how can we know this happened? Is there a first-hand account? Why isn't it ever quoted?
3: Also, the situation of the date change is more complicated. Not everyone in France switched to a January 1st celebration in 1564. Some switched much earlier. Some French books that were printed as early as 1507 indicated that people observed the new year on January 1st. So the story also doesn't hold that much water.
2: And it's only one of a number of shaky theories that connect the holiday to calendar changes, including the shift from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar in the 16th century, which is invoked to explain a lot of other holidays, too.
1: So what we really seem to have is a group of legends about the origin of April Fool's Day, which share some common motifs with each other and with other holiday origin stories.
2: Yeah, that's basically right. It's what we call meta-folklore, folklore folklore about folklore. In this case, legends about calendar customs. And none of this can really be proven to relate to April Fool's Day.
1: Okay, but what do you think is the earliest clear reference to April Fool's Day?
2: My vote is for a late medieval Dutch poem by Eduard de Dane about 1561, called Refrain on Errand Day, which is the 1st of April. And it's about a nobleman who sends his servant on some crazy fruitless errands. At the end of each stanza, the servant says, I'm afraid you're making me run a fool's errand.
1: So it's a reference to April Fool's Day because it's connecting pranks to the 1st of April?
3: Not only that, but the fool's errand continued to be a popular April Fool's prank even to today, 400 years later. You can find a lot of 20th century examples in newspapers here at the Library of Congress.
1: Can you name
2: some? Sure. I found an article from Akron, Ohio in 1902, which gives three errands for April Fool's Day. Sometimes people were sent to a bookshop to find the history of Eve's grandmother. Of course, Eve had no parents or grandparents. Or they were sent to the chemist to get pigeon's milk. Of course, birds aren't mammals, so they have no milk. And the worst was that they'd sometimes send young apprentices to the harness shop where they made leather straps for horsemanship with instructions to bring back strap oil, and that was code for the guys in the shop to spank them with a leather strap.
1: I'm glad times have changed. So when did April Fool's Day come to the English-speaking world?
2: The first mention in English is by an antiquarian called John Aubrey, who included an entry in a 1686 book about Fool's Holy Day, explaining... We observe it on the 1st of April, and so it is kept in Germany everywhere. And since we're asking about the origins of it, in 1760, people had already started to wonder about that, and an anonymous poem appeared in Poor Robin's Almanac. The 1st of April, some do say, is set apart for all fool's day. But why the people call it so, nor I, nor they themselves do know.
1: So when did the holiday come to America?
3: The first traces of it here come from the 18th century. There's a 1771 diary entry written by a schoolgirl named Anna Green Winslow in Boston, which shows that the holiday was known in North America. Winslow wrote her diaries a series of letters to her mother. In this entry, she carefully emphasizes the date twice and suggests the idea of the wild goose chase, implying her father had sent her mother on a wild goose chase on April Fool's Day in 1768. The entry ran April 1st. Will you be offended, Mama, if I ask you, if you remember the flock of wild geese that Papa called you to see flying over the blacksmith's shop this day, three years? I hope not. I only mean to divert you. Note to bene. It is one April.
1: The idea of the wild goose chase goes back at least to Shakespeare, right? So this is a pretty clear reference to a prank on April 1st.
3: Yes, and we have references to the same prank in 19th century Maryland. Teachers apparently called their students outside to see a flock of wild geese first thing in the morning on April Fool's Day. But by then, April Fool's Day was widespread and popular in America, and you find pretty frequent references to it in newspapers. In fact, on the webpage of the Library of Congress Chronicling America Project, there's a whole topic page for April Fool's references in the 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Check that out. Steve. There's one part of the blog that really interested me, which showed that by the late 19th century there were three main artistic representations of April Fool's tricks. The first one showed a brick under a hat lying on a sidewalk, and the idea was that someone would kick the hat and stub their toe on the brick. What's with that? What do you think?
2: Yeah, that's kind of a weird one. Luckily, we also have a cartoon that suggests that it was bad luck to see a hat lying on the ground and not to kick it. So I think that's why the pranksters expected folks would kick any hat they came across. Playing on this belief about bad luck, they could put a hat down with a brick in it and create an instant stub-toe hazard.
1: Okay, I guess that makes sense. Uh, The second one involves a valuable, supposedly lost object, like a wallet or money, set in plain view with a string tied around it. The string led to a hiding place where a person was waiting to pull it and yank the wallet away from whoever tried to take it.
2: That's a classic, right?
1: And the third is a smoking coin which indicates that the trickster had heated up the coin with fire or a cigar. The coin would be lying on the sidewalk and whoever tried to pick it up would be burned.
2: Yeah, those are great. There's actually another version of that where you glued coins to the sidewalk or the floor so they couldn't be picked up. But the smoking coin, of course, is easier to draw. Hmm. We've got one illustration from 1895 called Trying to Make an April Fool of Him that shows Uncle Sam surrounded by all of those pranks representing political risks facing the country at the time. That's a great piece that you can also see on the blog.
1: Great, but usually when I think of April (laughs) Fool's Day I think of students pulling pranks on teachers.
2: Fooling teachers is a tradition that goes way back and we have a guest here to tell us a little more about that. Stephanie Hall is a folklorist at AFC and another of our great bloggers at Folklife Today. So, Stephanie, where in the library's folklore collections do we find evidence of kids pranking their teachers on April Fool's Day?
0: One great source for that kind of thing is the Federal Writers' Project Collections of Folklore and Life Histories. Those are kept in the library's manuscript division, and a lot of them are online at loc.gov. There's one from South Carolina, which was a couple in their 50s named the Skippers, interviewed in 1939. Their school days were around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Sally Skipper recalls that the kids played hooky in the woods until noon on April Fool's Day, and the teachers retaliated by keeping them in late for the rest of the week. In books in our reference collection, we have reminiscences of the same kind of hooky day observed by children in the 1930s in Tennessee with added details that they had a big picnic together and made whistles out of hickory sticks, and then they showed up at the end of the school day blowing the whistles.
2: Those are great, but they don't really inconvenience the teacher. Are there any tricks played directly on the teacher?
0: Yes. One came to light in an interview with a Dr. Samuel Lathan in South Carolina. He was born in 1842, so his school days were way back in the 1850s. He said that on April Fool's Day, the students would get to school early and bar the door from the inside <laughs> so the teacher couldn't get in. But he said his teacher would take it philosophically and just cancel school for the rest of the day.
1: Wow, that teacher's lucky they didn't think of doing that every day. I know, right? How
2: about more recent times, Stephanie? Any student pranks in other AFC collections?
0: Yes, there's one or two recorded in the Center for Applied Linguistics collection. I say one or two because one student recounts two pranks but only clearly connects one of them to April Fool's Day. That's the classic trick of putting thumbtacks on somebody's chair. The other was more serious. Taking all the tires off of the teacher's car.
2: Wow, that is serious. Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. Let's hear that interview.
4: Were you ever in a class where the kids played a joke on the teacher? Trick?
5: Mm, see, last year with, I believe it was April Fool's they put a uh, text on a piece of tape and did set on it. And, and uh, yeah, yes there was no really one one instance. I don't think it was really a joke in, of any type. You know, teacher fell the kid and uh, he took uh, took all the tires off the car. Uh-huh. You know when she, and, you know, instead, of, you know, he didn't take them off. He uns- loosened all the wheels, and I think somebody told her before she drove off. Uh, I think you know she never did find out who did it, but you know somebody told her that it, somebody took the wheels loose. What happened when they put the text down? My teacher, she said on him, but <laughs> she's kind of hot. She said she's gonna fail everybody in class, but I think she, you know, she found out who did it, and I think he was put out of school.
1: So we're here talking about April Fool's Day, and it occurs to me: what about in the workplace? Are folks at work exempt? Not at all. There's a lot of documentation of
2: workplace pranks, from calling a worker just getting off a ten-hour shift and telling her she has to go back for another to break room pranks like replacing the sugar with salt or putting pepper in someone's coffee beans. In fact, right here at the American Folklife Center in the Library of Congress, some people get really creative on April Fool's Day, like our next guest, AFC Folklife Specialist Jennifer Cutting. She's pulled many really intricate pranks on people over the years, and she's had some pulled on her too. And she actually maintains a file on them. Welcome,
1: Jennifer.
6: Can you tell us about some of the pranks you pulled? Oh, I'd love to. There were a lot of them. Often, I would have friends disguise their voices and call in with fake reference questions. So I had my musician friend call then head of reference Jerry Parsons to say that he knew enough about the child ballads and was now researching the teen ballads. (laughs) and and years later i had my folklorist friend liz milner make up her own fake question and when and she came up with a really good one she called todd harvey who's our bob dylan expert and told him her mother had insisted that the real name of dylan's 1965 song and album was Highway 61 resurfaced (laughs) instead of Highway 61 revisited. And could he please give her all the background on why the real title had been suppressed? I tapped Liz again. She was so good at that first one that I tapped her again to call our vinyl record specialist, Matt Barton, who is now curator of Recorded Sound, asking for details about how she could buy 78 records as a gift for her husband who is a collector and after matt went into all kinds of details about different vendors who had the best prices and the fastest shipping for 78s she said with great surprise oh thanks but i meant records that came out in 1978 (laughs) great songs like boogie Oogie, oogie So all these gags draw on the kind of specialized knowledge that we have here at the library. And the thing is, as government librarians, we have to be polite and answer these questions even if we suspect they're pranks.
1: Those are great examples. But do you have a personal favorite workplace prank?
6: My favorite prank is the one I spent the most time on. On my free time, of course, not on government time. I wrote this at home and brought it in the next morning. My favorite prank of all times is a fake letter of reference that I wrote up in 1987 for the signature of Alan Jabour, who was my boss and our director at the time. It was pretty important because it was for a Guggenheim fellowship. And my goal was to get Alan to sign it without reading it because he trusted me so much. So... I wrote a very conventional first paragraph, but just went off the rails by the second paragraph. Here's my letter with the name of the candidate changed to protect the innocent. John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, Confidential Report on Candidate for Fellowship. Candidate, Otto Willwood. Date, April 1st, 1987. Folk art is a lively subject of discussion these days. At the Washington Meeting on Folk Art held in 1983 here at the Library of Congress, people from public and private sector networks all around the country shared their definitions of folk art and folk art environments. The book Folk Art and Art Worlds, which ensued, though covering American bases very thoroughly, does little to explore the international dimensions of the subject. Now I read Otto Willwood's application for a Guggenheim Fellowship, and I see that he is proposing precisely that. What will it take for you boobs on the selection panel to give this application some attention? As evidenced by the 1986 list of fellowship recipients, You seem to be enormously preoccupied with inconsequential subjects such as reconstruction of the global economic order and molecular mechanisms for enzyme regulation in cutaneous biology, while some poor truffle digger in Provence is practically withering away for want of attention to his spare time activity of belly button painting. So far as I am concerned, you are the biggest collection of pusillanimous cretins ever to sit on a selection panel. Mr. Willwood writes with a profound, incisive, penetrating, vigorous trenchancy, which is exceeded only by the perceptive, discerning, panoramic, intuitive, but prudent perspicacity of his photography. I issue this encomium not because Mr. Willwood is my cousin and financial advisor. Oh no, In all objectivity, I believe that Otto Willwood's work will be a significant contribution to the better international understanding you mention in your fellowship guidelines, and which, once funded, will be the object of innumerable pubic accolades. Signed, Alan Jabor, Director, American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, Washington, D.C., April 1st, 1987. Well, I almost got away with it. Alan just skimmed the beginning, saw the conventional part, and he actually signed it. But just as he did, his eye was caught by the words truffle digger, and he realized it was a gag. So so what did he do? He called my bluff. He sent it back to me with a note that said, ready to go, Jennifer, send it right out. He knew that if it went out like that, we'd both get in huge trouble. Wow, Wow, that
2: that took some guts. And we still have a copy of that with Alan's note as well. One of my favorites of Jennifer's pranks involved the famous folklorist S.
6: Turgeon. Do you remember that one, Jennifer? Oh, yeah, I sure do. That was a prank I played on the former head of our archive, Michael Taft. Now, Michael had spent many years in Canada, and there's a well-known Canadian folklorist named Laurier Turgeon who is good friends with Michael, and I knew that. So on April Fool's Day, I was on the reference desk while the rest of the staff had a meeting. So I interrupted the staff meeting to tell Michael that there was a visitor in the reading room named S. Tourjon, who was asking for him. Michael just assumed I got the name wrong, and it was Laurier, or else that it was a relative that Laurier had asked to visit. So he came into the reading room and found a big wooden fish.
2: Right, because Sturgeon spells sturgeon. sturgeon.
1: Okay, <laughs> so on the one hand, that's a terrible pun. But also, I see what you did there. The French word for an April Fool's gag is poisson de Vril, or April fish. So that was a literal poisson de Vril. Exactly. You know, John, Jennifer eventually
2: pranks everyone on the staff, and I don't think she's gotten to you yet, so I think you should be careful. And we've also preserved some of her best pranks in an April Fool's Day file in the Folklife Research Center at the Library of Congress, and anyone can come and look at them.
1: Well, in that case, I'll read up on her pranks so I'll get to know her M.O. In the meantime, that's our historical roundup of April Fool's Day, from its earliest times to the present day. Now, Steve, there was one more item you wanted to share, wasn't there? Yes. Believe it or not, there's a traditional song
2: in our collections about an April Fool's Day prank. It's a broadside called The First Day of April, also known as Campbell the Drover, or Three English Rovers. It's about three Englishmen who take an Irishman named Pat Campbell to a tavern and skip out, leaving him to pay the bill. Campbell pays the trick forward by tricking the landlord in order to get away, and his trick is really clever. It was a well-known ballad in Ireland, and Alan Lomax collected a version in 1938, sung by John Green in the Irish-American enclave of Beaver Island, Michigan.
1: Great, let's check that song out. But first, let's thank Michelle Stefano, Jennifer Cutting, and Stephanie Hall for appearing on the Folklife Today podcast. And Steve, thanks for producing this podcast with me.
2: Thank you, John. And let's also thank the other John, Jonathan Gold, our fantastic engineer, and Mackenzie Kwok, our intern who helped write the script.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. As you go forth today, remember to watch for tacks on your chair, don't pick up coins from the sidewalk.
2: And don't go around kicking hats. Just accept the bad luck. And now we'll hear that very funny ballad about April Fool's Day Pranks, The First Day of April, sung by John Green.
4: The first day of April I'll never forget When three English plays together had met They mounted on horseback and swore bitterly That they'd play a trick on the first embassy And sing pal ba da la ladley all da da la ladley Pal-da-da-la-ladley pal da da Pat <PTSD> Camel, so a drover so they happened to spy. He came from so Tyrone, a place called Amai. Then they saluted Camel and he done the same and in close conversation together they came and sang follow the daily Fall the lay Ladily fall the dolly Ladley Fall the Dolly They rode right along and they made a full stop They called upon Patty for two cake a drop. And Patty consented and said with a smile I, I long for to taste some good ale from Carlisle sing fah da da la Ladley, Fah da da la ladle. Ladle They ate and they drank and they sported as well Until 48 shillings to pay up the bill. Likewise, for their horse, some oats and good hay, and the topidly paddy, the racklin to pay, and think father it all all adley but all all it all out of the house they stole one by one, they topid leave to pay for the whole. The landlord came in, and this he did say, I'm afraid, Irish path, they've a trick on you, played and think Bob all all adley. Never mind them, says Pat, although they're gone away. I've got plenty of money they're acting to pay. If you'll sit down beside me before that I go, I will tell you a secret perhaps you don't know, and sing. Oh, but I I'll tell you, a secret contrary to law. There's three kinds of wine from one puncheon I'll draw. And the landlord was eager to find out that plan, and away to the cellar with Paddy he ran and sang, Fa but la la ladley, fa la 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 ladley, fa la la ladley, fa He bored a hole in a very short space, and he bade the landlord place his thumb on that place. The next one board, place the other one there, and I for a tummer, will go up the stair and sing falda da da le, da 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 Pat mounted his horse and was soon out of sight. The horseman came in to see if all was right. They hunted the house from the top to the ground and half dead in the cellar their mastery found thing fall but all that leaf. Fall but all the leaf. Fall but all that leaf. I absolutely heard of it. Where is that.
0: This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.